marathon took place, uh, which I think is still the largest marathon in the world, around 35,000 people uh, taking part. Uh, it's a combination of serious athletes who are competing against one another to win, uh, along with a whole array of people dressed up in all sorts of costumes, raising money for worthwhile causes. I don't know if you know, but several members of our congregation took part in the marathon. 20 people altogether, I think there were five or six from the chapel, some of them here this morning, who took part, 20 in a giant millipede. Uh, and they were raising money for medical research. <clears throat> I think they raised about £30,000. So, it's a very worthwhile cause, was it not? And when you see the pictures of marathons, you often see all the people taking part. It, it takes quite a time, I think up to half an hour, even to get to the start line if you're near the back, which doesn't help your timing, I suppose. And the fun runners all wave to their friends on the TV until they disappear from view. And the next sight you normally see is the finish. And you see who's won. Uh, the marathon, uh, the competitors sprint along some of them, while others finally stagger over the finishing line. What you don't see so much of is what happens between the start and the finish. For some, it's a very painful experience. I understand, and I've never run a marathon, and I doubt whether I ever will, uh, but uh, I understand that halfway, around between half and two-thirds, they call it, you hit the wall you reach that point where you think, I can't go any further. And some never even see the finish line, although there's hundreds of pictures, thousands on the internet, couldn't find many of people who'd fallen by the wayside, but there are just one or two of people who maybe finally made it over the line. In several places in the New Testament, the Christian life is compared to a race. Not a sprint, but a marathon. Not 26 and a bit miles, but many years. And for this reason, the New Testament places a premium on perseverance to keep on going. And the New Testament letter to the Hebrews, written as the name suggests to Jewish Christians, focuses on this theme in the 12th chapter. Here's what it says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses... Let us throw off everything that hinders and sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. But this appeal begins with the word, therefore. It's based on what went before, which you find in the previous chapter in Hebrews chapter 11. And today we're beginning a series based on Hebrews 11, which is all about living by faith which means living by a different standard to everyone else. Or in our motto for Charlotte Chapel, it means being distinctive. It means being conspicuous for Christ. And you'll see if you have a program card, and they are available in the racks if you weren't here a week or two ago when they were given out, we'll be looking at various themes, morning and evening, living by faith, faith and assurance, faith and worship, faith and fiction, faith and favour, faith and fear, all these different themes. But this morning, by way of introduction, we're going to look at what precedes chapter 11, that is chapter 10. We're going to look at the theme of faith and perseverance, what it means to keep on going. So, if you've got a Bible, will you turn to Hebrews 10, we're going to read verses 19 through 39. It really will help to have a Bible, 
Uh, there are Bibles in the pews. If you're not near one, just wave your hand and ask someone to pass you one because we're going to be looking at the text together as we always do here in Charlotte Chapel. It's page <coughs> 1208. You'll see in the NRV it's entitled A Call to Persevere. And Richard began our service by reading those opening verses. Let's read them again. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. If we deliberately keep on sinning, after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as unholy as an unholy thing, the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember those earlier days, after you'd received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest, in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult, and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So, do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God you will receive what He promised. For in just a little while... He who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith and if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. This is God's word. If you want a good phrase that summarizes what perseverance is, you'll find it in a little book on the Psalms written by Eugene Peterson. He defines it as a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. As in a marathon, few people drop out at the beginning of the Christian race. For many people, starting out as a Christian, and many of you can recall this in your own experience, is an exciting time. Maybe a big crowd comes to support you as you confess your faith in baptism. But the people to whom this letter is written from a Jewish background, these Hebrew Christians, had faced great opposition and paid a high price when they started out on the Christian race. 
Yet if this were a literal marathon, a commentator would report that they'd made a good start. And for some time, some years, they continue to run well. Steady progress. But now when this letter is written, they are facing a serious crisis. We don't know exactly what the crisis was. Some people think this letter was written during the reign of the Roman Emperor Claudius. In AD 49, he expelled all the Christians from Rome. Other people think it came from a time, maybe 15 years later, when the Emperor Nero blamed the Christians, scapegoated them for the great fire which burnt up much of the city of Rome. Christians were rounded up, imprisoned, killed in the arena. Nero even tied them to poles, daubed them with tar and set them alight to illuminate his garden parties. Maybe that was the background, we don't know. Maybe it was just the successive waves of persecution that came again and again and they had hit the wall in marathon terms. It was a serious crisis. It was a crisis of faith. And the big question was this. Faced with this situation, would they give up or would they go on? We often assume, do we not, that people who become Christians are most likely to turn away when they start out on the Christian life. That does happen sometimes because you're a new babe in Christ, you're very vulnerable. But more often, those early days, as we've seen, are quite exhilarating. Instead, it can be some years down the road that a Christian is tempted to give up. That he or she faces what we could call a Christian midlife crisis. So, many of us this morning would claim to be Christians. So, let me ask you, in all honesty, if the truth were told, here you are in Charlotte Chapel in May 2006. Don't know how long you've been a Christian. Let me ask you, are you tempted to give up? Strange how your memory plays tricks. And you think to yourself, I remember before I was a Christian, I had a really great time. I could do what I liked. This morning, I could actually be still in bed reading the newspaper or out playing golf instead of listening to this sermon. Or maybe you grew up in a Christian home. You never did any of those things that your non-Christian friends did, which seemed so attractive when being a Christian seemed somehow somewhat restrictive. And so you're tempted to give up and try their lifestyle. And if that is the case, I ask you this morning, what is it that's stopping you giving up? Is it what others might think? What your family or maybe their Christians might think? Your church connections? Or maybe, if truth were told, You've already given up and you're a secret unbeliever. You still come to Charlotte Chapel. But no one knows, though your family may suspect, that you're no longer really walking with Christ, running the Christian race. All it needs now is your physical removal from attending church. Well, if that's the case, today's message is for you. For it's written to these Christians in similar circumstances. People who are tempted to give up. It's a call to persevere. 
And I simply this morning, before we come around very appropriate to the Lord's table, I want to suggest three things from these verses which the writer gives to help us to keep going instead of giving up. The first in order and priority, and I'll spend longer on this one in case you're looking at the clock than the other two. The first in order and priority is this. The first thing you need to do is keep on coming into God's presence. Find this in verses 19 to 23. And these are packed full of theological content. So let me try and explain it very briefly and I could spend a sermon almost on each phrase. The big question which all religions seek to answer is how can we know God? How can we experience an intimate relationship with him for which we were made? And the big problem, the great barrier which stands in the way of that relationship is what the Bible calls our sin. Our determination to live our lives our own way in rebellion against God. And this bars us from an intimate relationship with a holy God. Now, under the Old Covenant, what we call the Old Testament, that agreement which God made with the people of Israel, God provided a way in which people could approach him. It involved the sacrifice of an animal, the mediation of a priest. But that only dealt with the surface of the situation and the problem and was very limited. And that was the religion which these Hebrews and Jews to whom this letter had written had lived. But one day they discovered some amazingly good news. That God had made a new and better way by which they might approach him. A reality of which their old religion was just a shadow. A new and living way, he says. Look what he says. A new and living way, verse 10, opened for us through the curtain. Now, this sounds very strange to us because we think curtains are things that cover up windows. Which they are. But the curtain he's talking about is a different curtain. It was the heavy curtain in the temple in Jerusalem that separated the people off from God's presence where he chose to dwell in a special way. It was called the most holy place or the holy of holies. The inner sanctum. And when he says here that God has made a new and living way through the curtain, what he's really saying is, God has made a new and living way by which people may go through the curtain to enjoy a relationship with God. It allows people to come into God's holy presence, that most holy place. And the curtain he's talking about here now is not a physical curtain. If you read the Gospel accounts, when Jesus died on the cross... When he cried, it is finished, that temple in the curtain, that heavy, temp, that heavy curtain, was split from top to bottom, symbolically showing that the old way of approaching God was finished. So what is the new way? Well, he says very interestingly, the curtain is the body of Christ. A new and living way through the death of Jesus. When he gave his body as a sacrifice for sin. When Jesus died on the cross, his body acts like a curtain, providing access into God's presence. And his sacrifice means that our sins can be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. His blood provides cleansing from sin. So the sacrifice of Jesus dealt with the problem that all human beings have of how we can approach God, a holy God, as sinful people. And so no longer is a human priest needed. 
When we come to Charlotte Chapel, then like the old Jewish religion, I don't have to slaughter an animal. I'm very grateful for that, but you should be even more grateful, all of us, that we no longer need to sacrifice animals. We no longer need another intermediary because he says Jesus is a great priest over the house of God. Now, he's writing to these Hebrew Christians who came from that old background into this new and living way of approaching God. And he says, you have confidence to come to God through this new and living way. Now, if that was the case, if that is the case for us, if we have understood this, and I've only explained it very briefly, then we should not neglect this most precious thing which people throughout the world long for. Why do you think our missionaries labour in coral islands way out in the Pacific to translate the New Testament? So that people who don't yet know might experience what it means to know God in this way. It is good news for all people. So the writer of this letter reminds these Hebrew Christians who were tempted to give up, he reminds them of the basic facts of their faith and he says, let us draw near to God with confidence. Verse 22, we come to God with sincere hearts, he says, openly and honestly before God in full assurance of faith. Not a faith in ourselves, but faith in what Jesus did on the cross. And so we come with a conscience that is cleansed, for our guilt has been forgiven. And we offer ourselves in sacrificial service. Again, this is all Jewish ritual language. He says, having our bodies washed with pure water. He doesn't mean that literally. Under the Old Covenant, when the priest went into God's presence, he scrupulously cleansed himself, washed himself thoroughly, and put on clean new clothes before he approached God. We don't need to do that. But in the words of Romans 12.1, we offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is our spiritual worship. We offer our bodies to God. Now, having said all that, His big point is to say, if this is all true, if this is what God has done, if this is so fantastic, why on earth would you want to give it up? Why would you want to abandon this new and living way for the old way? Why would you want to substitute the substance for the shadow, the reality for the truth? And why would we, who don't have the privilege of growing up in a Jewish background, want to go back to the old way of life? To abandon all that life really is. Our verse for the year summarizes it. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So, he says, don't give up. Go on. Hold on to the promises of God. It is a call to persevere. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised It's faithful. The tense is a present continuous tense. Let us keep holding on, unswervingly, without deviation. Don't fall out of the race. Keep going. And once you lose the foundations of the faith, in the finished work of Christ, we begin to deviate. If you're sitting here this morning and say, ah, that's all old hat, then you've lost a sense of wonder what it's all about. And how easily we shift focus And we begin to drift away from the foundations of our faith. It's so important and we are so prone to wonder that the Lord Jesus Christ gave us a visible way in which we keep coming back and remembering. Bread and wine to remind us of the foundations of our faith that we can come into God's presence 
So that's the first way we persevere. We keep coming into God's presence. And this morning we have an opportunity. This is why God has given us this day, the first day of the week. This is why he's given us these symbols, so that we come together and remind ourselves, this is what it's all about. Living in God's presence. That which people long for throughout the world. We have this wonderful privilege. And maybe you need to do that again this morning. We come to God's throne. The throne of the God of the universe. King of kings, Lord of lords. It's not a throne of merit, it's a throne of grace. So earlier in this book he he writes, the writer writes, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That's the first thing that will help us to keep going, to persevere. Here's the second, which reminds us, as these verses already have, that we don't do this alone. We run the race with other people. So secondly, keep on meeting with God's people. Verses 24 to 31. During the 13-hour long flight from Singapore, which was delayed for 10 hours on Thursday, uh, they've got these things. Now, you can watch all these films in the little thing on, your, on the uh, back of the uh, seat of the person in front of you. And among the things that I watched, along with reminding myself of the wonderful Ashes victory, which we won't go into, uh, I watched a remarkable drama documentary of a film which some of you will have seen called March of the Penguins. Some of you have seen it, I can see by the smiles. Uh, I found some pictures on the website. It depicts, and I quote, for those who haven't seen it, how each winter, alone in the pitiless ice deserts of Antarctica, deep in the most inhospitable terrain on earth, a truly remarkable journey takes place as it has done for millennia. Emperor penguins in their thousands abandon the deep blue security of their ocean home, clamber onto the frozen ice to begin their long journey into a region so bleak, so extreme, it supports no other wildlife at this time of year. In single file, the penguins march, blinded by blizzards, buffeted by gale force winds for hundreds of miles to lay their eggs and rear their young. And in such a hostile environment, their only hope of survival is to stay together and to march together. There's a tragic picture in it of a penguin that strays off and can't keep up and it says, he is seen no more, disappears into the, into the snow. A penguin that strays off on its own, can't keep up with the rest, is doomed. Now, the same thing holds true for those who would run in the far more demanding marathon race of life following Jesus. While running races is an individual challenge, in competition with others, in the Christian race, mutual support is essential. And those who ran as a 20-person millipede, I'm sure all had to run together. You couldn't just decide to run off on your own or, or break away from the rest. So the millipede is a much better illustration for this. Yet, here's a sad and tragic thing that happens. And I've seen it, sadly, as a pastor over many, many years. The first sign that a Christian is struggling is that he or she begins to abandon the very people whom they most need at this time, their fellow Christians. In the most practical of terms here, notice how practical it is, he or she stops meeting with other Christians, stops attending church, stops attending Christian activities. Now, as soon as I say this, I'm aware that it raises a flag in people's minds, particularly the present generation. 
my generation grew up on activities, on meetings. Everyone went along religiously. And yes, I know it could just, just be in a ritual that masked the fact that people didn't have a real relationship with Christ. And yes, there is more to life than just meetings. I always remember hearing Warren Wiersbe, the uh, Christian writer and pastor, he, he quoted a little poem that I sometimes quote in connection with Charlotte Chapel. Mary had a little lamb, it should have been a sheep, it joined the Southern Baptist Church and died through lack of sleep. Well, <laughs> Yes, that's possible. It's a danger. But there is a far greater danger that we stop meeting with other Christians altogether. Or just occasionally when we feel like it. But as John Wesley famously said, the Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. And one of the sure signs that you are a Christian, that you've been born again of the Spirit of God, is that you love the other members of the Christian family, warts and all, and regularly want to meet with them. Not because you have to, but because you want to. What would you think if someone said, oh yes, we're a very close family, we meet every Christmas. We need one another. And when things are tough, we need one another more than ever. Yet at such times, how often we give up meeting with other Christians. And so the writer issues a warning. He says, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. The word give up there, the Greek word behind that, is the word Jesus used on the cross to abandon, forsake, when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We are urged not to forsake or abandon God's people. I know it's tempting at times but instead keep on meeting together. Now, of course, it's not just a mechanical attendance. You turn up and clock in at church and you've put your appearance in, that's it. No, it's a relational thing. We have mutual responsibilities, one to the other. And the New Testament is full of these verbs that have the word one another in them. Forgive one another, love one another, welcome one another, rebuke one another. And here in this situation where Christians were tempted to abandon their faith, he has two little one another's in there. Did you notice them? In the first, the writer urges his fellow Christians to pay close attention to, to consider ways in which they can spur one another on. The word spur on can have a negative meaning, to irritate someone. It doesn't mean that here. It's a positive sense. To stimulate one another, he says, towards love and good deeds, to practical acts of kindness and support for those who are finding things tough. Uh, that was what marked out the early Christians, made them so attractive. People said, look how these Christians love one another. They share their resources. They share their lives. They're generous with one another. So let me ask you another question. Do you know someone this morning who's finding the going tough as a Christian? Maybe they're not even here this morning for that very reason. Maybe they used to be here regularly. And they've stopped coming altogether. They just gradually drifted away and they're no longer walking with God's people. Now, it's the easiest thing in the world just to criticise them and say, oh, well, they've given up on the faith, I'll give up on them. How much better to seek to spur one another on to love and good deeds, to encourage them. Maybe you know someone who's struggling as a Christian. He says, think about practical ways in which you can spur one another on. What could I do for that person that would really help them? Maybe I could give them a wee gift and say to them, why don't I come and babysit for you and you two go out for a meal this week. 
Maybe you could just drop them a card and say, thinking of you at this time, hope you're doing okay, can I help in any way? Maybe a phone call. It should be a mutual part of our fellowship together to help one another when we're struggling. To pick one another up. And so he uses another word as well. We're urged in these verses to encourage one another. We do that when we meet together. It's encouraging to, to stand and sing, and can it be, with seven or eight hundred people here in the church. You can struggle along alone and you come along. Or you meet together in a small group. They're so vital, our small groups, that we meet together to encourage one another. We share things for prayer that you would never want put on the back of the bulletin. But they're personal and real to you. We need one another. Now the writer talks beyond this of a far greater danger. He says, the great danger is that once you abandon God's people, it is a slow and steady drift before you might even abandon God himself and abandon Christ. Oh, I know people don't say, they say, I don't come to church anymore, but I've not given up on my faith. A very dangerous course to tread. And he warns you what Christians call the danger of apostasy. That people turn around and in the end abandon Christ and his people altogether. In the Bible Speaks Today commentary on Hebrews, Raymond Brown writes of this danger of apostasy. This is what he says. They began by drifting away from the moorings of truth. Then they neglected to meet together. Gradually they had been lured on from spasmodic doubt to a persistent apostasy which expressed itself not only in unbelief but in violent opposition to Christ and his people. We don't have time to look at it but he points out the characteristics of such people. He says they've rejected God's son, God's truth, they've spurned God's son, they've despised God's spirit. And he says if the penalty for rejecting God under the old poorer covenant was great, how much greater under the new covenant for those who reject Christ and the way of salvation. The penalty is God's judgment. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. These are sober verses of warning to any of us who may be in that danger. You may think, I'll never get to that point. Don't be so sure it is a steady drift away from Christ when we turn away from him altogether. We do not ignore such warnings, he says, for the day, the day of God's judgment is approaching. Verse 25, let us encourage one another, all the more as you see the day approaching. But for those who are trusting in Christ, it will be a day of salvation. So the third aid to help us to keep on is this, keep on trusting in God's promise. Faith, as we'll see in this series, God willing, is trusting in God's word, that he'll keep his promise that in the words of verse 3, which Colin we're preaching on this evening, he rewards those who diligently seek him. Now, such a faith always involves a cost. It's contrary to the world's way of thinking. He says to these Hebrew Christians, remember the cost of your commitment. Remember the price you paid to follow Christ. Public insult and persecution. Identification with suffering Christians, even those in prison. Confiscation of your property. And yet, he says, you responded joyfully. Now, he says, having made such a costly down payment, they'd be foolish to throw it all away now. So, do not throw away your confidence. He says, if you persevere, you will receive what God promised. And by way of illustration, he quotes from one of the Old Testament minor prophets, a man called Habakkuk 
who pleaded with God and said, in a world of injustice to God, why don't you do something? And God's answer was, be patient. God will keep his word. Live by faith. So he quotes there in verse 37, for in just a very little while, he who is coming will come, will not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith, and if he shrinks back, I'll not be pleased with him. God always keeps his promises, for God is faithful. So we have this future dimension that we look forward to. We're heading for the goal. We're heading for the end of the race. We're heading for the prize that God has promised, and God will keep his word. So when we're discouraged to give up, don't give up. Keep looking forward, trusting in God's promise. Let me say something finally, in in conclusion. The final verse, verse 39. Despite the harsh warning that is issued, the writer has no doubt that his readers are not those who give up and are destroyed, but those who believe and are saved. There's a word for this. It's called the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And people say, how do you know if you're really a Christian? Well, the perseverance of the saints simply means that saints persevere. The proof is seen in that fact. We are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. And all of us fall into these two categories. We either shrink back and are destroyed, or we believe and are saved. So I ask you this morning, are you trusting in Christ and all that he did on the cross for you by that new and living way? There is no other way. Only God's judgment. Have you believed and are saved? And are you going on? Are you trusting in God's promise? Let me conclude with a true story. Some years ago, on another missions trip, uh, we were visiting a group of people who were working, I can't even tell you the names of the countries for security reasons, but working as Christians in the most severe of circumstances, in very close societies, where to follow Christ was extremely costly. In fact, for a national to follow Christ often meant death. And these people were working in this situation, and the people it was most difficult for were the women who were working in these situations. They could never go out on their own. They faced loads of restrictions, all the things we take for granted, and yet they persisted in serving Christ in this way. And I was speaking, what do I know from my situation of liberty really, I felt very humbled by it, trying to encourage them, like this morning, to keep on going. And at the end of the message I said, let's just have a moment of quiet and reflection and prayer. And at the end of it, as we were just, our heads were bowed, probably a group of about 20 people, men and women, uh, one of the women suddenly struck up and sang a chorus I sang it when I was younger. I hadn't sung it for years and years. And yet it was so appropriate. And I find it very moving. Uh, The older folk will know the chorus and the younger folk may not. But this is what the chorus said and I conclude with this. This lady sang, It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face all sorrows will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. That's what it's about. Bottom line. So let's bravely run the race.